Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. My guest today is none other than Bill Mulligan. And today we're going to talk about a very specific topic. So why don't you introduce what we're going to talk about today? Well, for the last 20 some years, I've been researching Irish emigrant copper miners in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And this has led me to investigate the history of copper mining in Ireland, to figure out how they acquired the skill, when they left, when they did, and and then to follow them through, since in, in many ways it's a history of failure, because the community, while large and somewhat successful, ultimately falls victim to prejudice. And after about the 1870s, uh, begins to drift away from Upper Michigan. And people never, really, people never really looked highly on the Irish either, have they? No, it's, um, well, it, what happens is initially when the mines first opened, it's in the wilderness. It's at the, it's at the western end of Lake Superior, um, the, and it's it's very isolated part of the world. The lake freezes over for six months of the year, and so there's no ship access, and the railroad didn't come wow. until the 1880s. So in the 1840s and 50s, this was a very isolated place, and if you showed up there and knew how to actually mine which meant going underground and drilling with by holding a metal drill over your head while someone hit it with a sledgehammer by candlelight <laughs> and then setting off explosives you you could find work <laughs> right and they didn't ask they didn't ask a lot of questions and there's irish there's germans and there's a cornish all there they don't get along very well and I found out, in fact, in the company records, all of the crews are, are one ethnic group. Each ethnic group has their own crews. The Cornish don't work with the Irish. They, no, they don't work with the Germans. The German, you know, they all work separately. And this actually has some follow-through things that I found later that we maybe we can talk about in terms of language. Um, but as the mines go deeper, they require more capital. And capital is something that comes from the East Coast. And in this instance, it mostly comes from Boston, which is controlled by old line Yankee Protestants. And they um, are very anti-Irish. They think the Irish are troublesome because they want more money and um, various other things. In fact, in 1862, they sent agents to Sweden 
uh, to recruit miners to come to Upper Michigan to replace the Irish. Right. Um, but, the, but the Irish somehow found out about this. And due to the vagaries of Great Lakes shipping, which won't take a lot of time to explain, they had to change ships uh, to get into the harbor where the, near the copper mines. It didn't have sufficiently deep draft for the big lake ships. Well, the, the miners arranged for Union Army, this is during the American Civil War, and Union Army recruiters met the boat and offered the Swedes $300 to join the Union Army. And most of them did. They took the money and joined the army. And in the, in the annual report, it's in the Quincy Mining Company's annual report for 1863, and it somewhat laconically says, the experiment of recruiting miners in Europe will not be repeated again this year. So, and, and so they were able to, to turn back that, that um, attack. But in, the 18, in 1878, the head of the mining company in Boston wrote to the manager uh, and said, the Knights of Labor are, are troublesome. They're mostly Irish. It would be best not to increase that nationality. And I'm able to match that up with um, a lack of promotion, increasingly Irish not being hired. And uh, it's, a one, it's, you know, it's a one industry location. And so uh, people have to think to leave. And um, as it turns out, at around that time, a man named Marcus Daly, who is from Ireland, wins the Battle of the Copper Kings in Butte, Montana. <laughs> and he welcomes the Irish. And so there's this um, exodus, if you will, um, to Butte, where they can go and, and get good jobs as miners. Uh, they um, are not going to be discriminated against. They can have promotions. Um, Daly builds uh, five Catholic churches. He writes directly to the Archbishop of, of Dublin uh, for priests and nuns to start schools. And so the, what you see, and this is kind of sort of micro history, I guess, um, in this, there's a the local newspaper had a social page. And at first I didn't think much of the social page, but I began looking at it just, you try to be complete. And there were notices, Patrick Riley came back from Butte to bury his father. His mother will be going home with him. John Flynn came from, and you see this whole succession of people coming back to bury a parent from where they had gone to find work. And so I was able to reconstruct um, the patterns of uh, these migration, to, particularly to Butte. Butte was the main destination, but many also went to Leadville, Colorado. And interestingly, um, one group tried to return to be farmers or tried to be farmers. And um, you know, I don't know how much your listeners know about um, Irish American history, but right after the Civil War here, a group of Union Army veterans invaded Canada. Was this the American War you're referring to? Well, it's, it's not really, a, the, the United States government is not involved in it. This is it's not the American Canadian War, you know, in 18... No, it's not the War of 18... No, this is in, this, no, this is in 1866, 1867, after the American Civil War. And um, 
it was it was quite unsuccessful. And but one of the leaders of that, when he got out of prison, and the U.S. government put him in prison for this, he recruited about 15 families from the copper mining district to go to north central Nebraska to establish farms. And I was able to, I actually spent a week there uh, researching those families and, and their attempts to sort of establish a viable community in a, in a fairly inhospitable environment. I mean, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan is has a very, very long, hard winter, but where they were um, is one of those areas where there's not a lot, not very reliable rainfall, which makes it very difficult, as you know, everyone would know, to maintain any kind of farm. But uh, I was able to find a lot about that community. And that fed into one of the things that I began to question about the general narrative about Irish immigration to the United States. Um, one of the things people often say is one of the advantages the Irish had was that they had English when they arrived. Well, it turns out that that's not really true. Um, I found a number of instances uh, where the Irish in the copper country were Irish speakers and monoglot Irish speakers. Um, and, and so that they did not have English. And that helps explain in part why they didn't integrate better into the larger community. Um, partly it's because the housing patterns of the mines tend to be dispersed around the mine openings. But also if you don't you know, if you have a different language from everyone else, you're going to, it's going to be a more tightly clustered community. In fact, I found that upwards of 90, around 90 percent through the through the night through 1900 marry another Irish person. They don't marry outside their group to any any appreciable degree. So but it's, I would it's ask a very. You, I would ask you before we go into the story, how how did you get this interest in this specific topic, like the Irish mining community? Well, how did you come across this? Well, in, in 1993, I was living in the mining district. And I know I lived on Healy Avenue and on the business buildings, there were Irish names, you know, carved into the top of the building and street names and early county and city officials were Irish. But I never met any Irish people. And I began, you know, I mean, people, you know, Mulligan is a fairly easy name to spell, yeah. but it sounds very, a lot of, it sounds very Irish. Well, it is, but uh, most of the people there are now are Finns and Italians. Um, and so they, 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 they I, I was called Moylanin a few times. Um, and so I began investigating, well, how could people be so prominent, you know, that their names, a group, that their names are on streets and on business blocks, but they disappeared. And so I started with that uh, premise of trying to track down, you know, what had gone wrong essentially, and why had this group reached a certain point and then had to leave. And I never, it never had occurred to me that they would be miners in Ireland because everything I read said that there was no um, mineral wealth in Ireland. Right. So I was I was kind of because and minor you know you don't you know you don't just send anyone underground with high explosives. You want people who know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so they had to have some. So I was in. I actually went to Ireland to Cork, and gave a paper at a conference, and I sort of raised that question that I was curious, and one of the Irish 
historians in the audience said, well, they were probably from the copper mines at Alahees. And I said, well, what copper mines at Alahees? Everything I read says, you know, there were no mineral resources in Ireland except for peat. And he said, yes, it says that, but it's really wrong. That there, and there actually is a fairly extensive mining history in Ireland, and even today is a, no, no, no copper, but there are there are still some operating uh, mines, particularly yeah. nickel. Um, and so I, I came back a couple of years later and went out to Alahees and was able to get microfilm of a lot of the mining company records and began matching up uh, people's names. And uh, I went to some of the old cemeteries in the Copper District. And quite often they would list where the person had been born. And many of the, quite a number of them were born in um, the Castletown, Bearhaven, Alahees area. And you know, so I was able to establish um, that connection. And I met with the local historians and genealogists and they were vaguely aware of it, but it coincides with the famine. And so communication was not as good as later immigrants or even earlier immigrants because there's such a disruption in Ireland. And it, it, it's compounded by several things. I don't know, get into too much detail, but it's, it's also one of the few areas where Irish immigrants went where they didn't control the Catholic church. Right. Um, there were very few Irish priests um, in the area ever. When they first got there, most of the priests were Slovenian. They were missionaries to the Native Americans. And they spoke German, French, the native, the native language, Anishinaabe, and you know, a whole variety of, of European languages. But they had very little English, if they had any. And so the Irish arrived and Unlike when they get to New York or Boston or East Coast cities, um, the church is largely an Irish institution. Here, the church was um, a somewhat, not, I wouldn't say hostile, but it, you know, it, it wasn't as welcoming as it might've been because those people were there to, to minister to the Native Americans. And they, weren't, and they were a little bit concerned about this influx of settlers and miners Mining communities can be a little rowdy. <laughs> and um, in fact, that was one of the things that gave me the first clue about the language, uh, which um, was a surprise because I, like everyone else, I assumed that they had arrived with English. But in the diary uh, of the first bishop of the, of the area, who's uh, Frederick Barraga, he writes about his assistant who's in the copper country and what a heroic effort he's making to learn the Irish language because many of his parishioners only speak Irish. And that sort of got my attention because I wasn't expecting it. And it had to be a serious issue if the priest would go to the trouble of trying to teach himself Irish mm -hmm. to communicate with his parishioners. <laughs> Right. And, you know, and so that led me to some other um, incidences that incidents that suggest um, that the language was alive there and spoken into the 1880s. The last case I found of a, of a monoglot Irish speaker is, is from the 1880s. And he managed to work there and make a living 
uh, in the mines without speaking a word of English. But <laughs> I, I want to know, we touched briefly on this in the Gold Rush episode with Aristotle Ghost Riders was here, but what was life like in the mines for an Irish worker? Was it good pay or was it like, was it how, how um, Well, the pay was, the working conditions were hard. Um, you worked underground for about 12 hours a shift. It's a 12 hour shift. Um, the pay was not particularly good. That was one of their constant grievances was um, overpay. The mines were quite profitable, but they didn't pay very well. Um, you, would, you would walk to the mine in the 1850s. Um, when you enter a mine and begin to go underground, when you get 100 feet underground, the temperature is a fairly constant 40 to 40, 40 to 45 degrees year round. That's why bears, bears hibernate in caves. I imagine it would be cold, not hot. Well, but for every 100 feet you go underground, the temperature rate increases about one degree. So by the time the mine gets to a thousand feet, you're at 50 to 60 degrees. Well, the mines in the copper country got down to 6,000 feet. And the temperature at the bottom of the mine would be a hundred, would be around a hundred degrees. And you would work for 12 hours in a hundred degree temperatures. And then you would, you would, they had what are called man cars, which are on tracks and they would lower you down with a, at an angle at about 15 miles an hour, you would go down. Then you would come up from 100 degrees to the surface and you and it would be at about 15 miles an hour. So you would be up in 15, 20 minutes. And in the winter, you would then have to walk a quarter of a mile to the building to change your clothes. And the temperature might be 20, oh, we use Fahrenheit here, but be about 30 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Oh. It'd be 30 degrees below zero. And you would have to walk a quarter of a mile. Having just been in 100 degrees, you're now at minus 40 degrees. <laughs> and I'm not sure they work from walk. dark to dark, right? There's, they, they never see the sun. Yeah, they, in fact, that's something I'm, I'm working on. I was, gonna, I was supposed to give a paper in Greenland, of all places, on the role of darkness in, the, in their lives. But it was, it was canceled because of the COVID. Um, the days up there, it's far enough north. I'm not, I don't know what country you're in. Norway. I, I should have. I should. But pardon? Norway. Norway. Well, it's far. It's far enough north that in the winter, uh, the days are. It, it's dark by four o'clock in the afternoon, yeah. and it doesn't really get light until. You, so you're familiar. With, so if you're going to work in the mine from seven o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night, you go to work in the dark, and you come home in the dark much of the year. Now in the summer it's different. It's 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 a very long day. Yeah, I mean it depends on close to the polar circle you are, right? Yeah, it's it's well above. Um, I should have looked it up, but it's well above the forty fifth. You can't grow tomatoes there. You can't grow corn there. Obviously, <laughs> the main crops are the main crops are hay and potatoes, right. um, and I guess onion. You can grow onions, but. Um, so yeah, no, it's a very hard life physically. Um, now the the and, and you're underground in this temperature. Uh, the, and the only light they have are from well into the 19th century. 
the only light they have are from candles. Yeah. Uh, and and so you're you're so you're you're in is very you know dark environment. I mean, even if you have a crew of five or six people, you know, a few can candles aren't gonna give you much light. Plus, they were charged for the candles. The candles were deducted from their wages. So a lot of the accounts mentioned that they would only light one candle at a time to save on candles because they didn't want to have them docked out of their pay. And so you're working in the dark with um, holding a steel bar over your head that has a drill bit on the end. And one or two people will hit that with a 32 pound sledgehammer while you have to twist it slightly on each impact. Um, and you, you do that until you drill a pattern of holes. And that's one of the skills that they have is knowing, um, being able to read the face of the rock so that they know where the, to most efficiently uh, place the drill holes. Then you pack those with blasting powder and a fuse, and then you go a distance away and hide behind something and set it off and, and hope that it blows up. If it doesn't blow up, you have a very dangerous situation. What, what was the value of copper compared to, like, let's say, silver, gold, etc.? Well, it's not as well. It's it's initially its value is it's much less valuable uh, than than gold or silver, um, but it's it's very plentiful, uh, and so you know you can produce a large quantity of it, um, and over time particularly, now this is after the Irish have moved on from Michigan, but over time, it becomes increasingly valuable, particularly when the invention of electricity, or because of, and it, it's, it's especially valuable because one of the, contam the contaminants in the, the copper chemically in that area is silver. It has a higher, silver and copper appear together quite a bit. And the silver, the copper there has a, has a slightly higher silver content than normal, which means it's more conductive for, for electricity. And so it actually makes better wire. So the, it, it, it attracted a very good price on the world market uh, well into the, um, well, into, into at least the World War I period. Now you, met, you mentioned that uh, the, in the winter, if the lake fr froze over, but how did they ship out in the winter? Did they save it up until the summer? They saved, it, yeah, they saved it up until the navigation would open. The navigation usually opened around April. In fact, you can t in the newspaper, they would have a, a citywide, community-wide party to celebrate the end of navigation. It sounds like a little bit of a... There were no ice road truckers back then, though. <laughs> yeah, and they would have, you know, they would celebrate, you know, they were going in, and then in April when when it was getting ready to reopen, they'd have another sort of going to have contact with the outside world because until the railroad came in the 1880s, they didn't even get mail very often. The mail had to come by dog sled from about uh, well, from a significant distance away, from several hundred miles away. So it, it became it was very a very isolated place from October until April. But the work of the mines went on. There was a smelter there, so they smelted the copper on in the region, and they they would pile it up 
in, in warehouses near the docks so that when the shipping opened up, um, they, could, they could ship it out quickly. But um, all of the things that you, know, you would need to survive in terms of food and things like that had to be stockpiled. Um, there's a lot of um, you know, curing of meats, canning, um, because you, you, know, you, you weren't getting shipments of, of any kind of, of food, on, you know, foodstuffs on any regular basis. It was a very isolated, um, very isolated place. What was it like for the family that lived with the miners that lived there? Well, they, the, the families come fairly early. It's a little bit different than the, the California mines in that um, from the first... Well, what do you say it was more miserable in the copper mines than the California mines, or was it? Oh, they're very different. It's a whole, entirely different type of mining initially. Uh, these are underground mines where you go underground. Uh, the initial California mines uh, are called are placer mines initially, uh, where, you, where you literally filter uh, sand and through um, in in, in, in and, and riverbanks and isolate the, the material. They don't go underground until somewhat later. Whereas these mines, from the very beginning, uh, are, are are underground mines. And um, there's a California mine. Now, because the California mines take um, individuals don't have to, particularly at the beginning, uh, there's, there's not much necessity for any kind of real skill or capital uh, because you, you literally um, sort of have your claim and you have your little, you can process it with very, very limited tools. But eventually, of course, they do. Uh, develop the underground mines, and they're very similar um, to to what hap what happens in Michigan. It just it's just a, a different a lag time. The Michigan the Michigan mines begin to open 1844 1845. California is is 1849, so it's it's a few years. But the the initial work in in the two regions is is quite different. Michigan is underground initially, and rapidly becomes a high capital, high skill. Um, mining. Uh, California takes a little bit longer for that that stage to be reached and, and to develop. What's the you, can make a lot, you can make more money very quickly with gold and silver if you hit it big. If you find a really good deposit, you, you, you can make a lot of money very quickly, whereas with copper, um, takes you know, time. It takes time. But was, was it like a small boom town when they came to the, with the trouble? When they first came, yeah, it, it's, you know, initially um, there's nothing there. And so you have, you know, tents and, and cabins. But um, by 1850, within the first five or six years, um, there's a, there, there are towns, towns that develop. There are uh, some people come in to be merchants. There are stores. Um, they have they have to build houses or cab log cabins. One of the things I almost I have some nice pictures of, of log cabins that were built um, because you, you can't live in a tent in in, in, oh. in that environment, especially so have very much in the winter. So I mean there there's a sort of drive to do that and um, because and so and because there are families there is the demand for household goods and. One of the most successful of the Irish in the area is not a miner, but he has a dry goods store. Right. And he, um, you know, he, 
he branches out from dry goods into groceries and uh, various and other things is, is Edward Ryan. Um, and when, when he died in, in, 18, uh, in, in 1900, he was worth just under a million dollars US yeah. in 1900. Um, but what, happened, his, what happened during the winter with the, with the dry store? How did, how did if you, since there were no other way of coming across, well, how, he would how did stock up supply? He would stock up. I mean, he, um, they, they, you know, it's, it's the fact that the navigation closes is not a, is not a surprise. So the, the, you know, the, the plan was to stock up on goods and you can, you can, if you look at the newspaper ads closely as the winter wears on the price of some things begins to creep up, but you know, he would, he, what he seems to have done was ordered in a large quantity of cloth, shoes, uh, all the various things he was going to sell and then sell off the inventory as, um, you know, as the season unfolded. And then once the railroad comes and he's still in business when the railroad comes, that, that changes it. Then it becomes more uh, it becomes possible. possible. And I want to keep, keep going with the winter because I find it fascinating when there is such an isolationist town. But well, this might be a stupid question, but where, there were another way to send the, the copper over. They can load horses with supplies and go across the lake. Well, Is that an option? No, because it, it's just too far. Um, I mean, because the lake, I mean, not just, it's on Lake Superior, um, which is a huge, you know, lake. Um, hauling it by horses through the snow and in that area, they they average about 300 inches of snow a year. Um, I, I don't know what that is in centimeters, but the snow will be uh, as high as um, a two-story, two-story, three-story building. Um, <laughs> the snow is 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 impressive, uh, and so the cost of something heavy uh, like copper to be hauled by horses uh, multiple days. Which you know raises all kinds of problems with the horses in that kind of environment. How do you, how do you feed them? How do you keep them from freezing? Um, no, they they simply worked by stockpiling the goods that they had produced, the copper, and by bringing in large quantities of of merchandise, um, you know, ahead of time. And it was a sort of a cycle. I mean, that was something that you you planned for and worked with. You know, what little I've been able to find out about households, uh, there's a great deal of, of canning and um, brining of meats and things. So they, they're, 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 the women are spending apparently a lot of time. So, sorry, I just had to charge the computer. It's almost, uh, I just had to put it in the plug. There you no go. problem. Yeah, it's not, I apologize for that. Oh, no, that's no problem. Um, yeah, carry on. So, you know, it, 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 it was, it, they quickly adjust to that as a rhythm of their life. And, um, and they met that, that's, that there's very little, there's no mention in the newspapers or in any of the other sources that I've found of any periods of going without food or not being able, you know, some things, you know, like cloth or a new pair of shoes might, might have been a little hard to get towards the end of the winter. But um, they seem to have planned well ahead in terms of providing themselves with uh, plenty of 
plenty plenty of food and and social activities the churches um and community groups had lots of social activities in the winter um and they were they seemed to have been very well attended um there were uh, the irish had a fraternal organization um, society of saint patrick by 1860 that had a hall and they would bring in musical performers during the months when the place was accessible. They would have sort of community events uh, during um, the winter. They had a lot of political speakers come in. Um, they would have um, Irish, you know, people who were advocating for Irish freedom from Britain would visit regularly. Uh, they took up collections to fund I mentioned the invasion of Canada in the 1860s. They actually had fundraisers um, to help fund the invasion of Canada, which I, I, I found that was actually kind of a fascinating thing to find because- um, right. Can I tell us about the invasion of Canada and why, why did they support the invasion of Canada? Well, they're mostly, these are almost entirely Irish Catholics and the resistance to British rule in Ireland um, is developing in, in the in the 1850s and 60s. You have so it was more or less personal. What do you say? Well, no, well, no. It's a political movement. It's, it, it, in the the Irish Republican Brotherhood uh, in Ireland has branches in the United States, and they are organizing and raising money to eliminate British rule in Ireland. And they are um, they recruit. In fact, when um, Michael Corcoran recruited Irish immigrants in New York City to serve in the Union Army during the American Civil War in 1860, one of his arguments was, we will learn how to fight, we'll learn how to be soldiers, and we'll go home and we'll take and we'll drive the British out of Ireland. Um, it, it's, it's, they're very much linked into uh, a sort of nationalist view of Ireland that wants to eliminate British rule. The IRA, well, it's, it's, it's a predecessor of the IRA. It's, it's the Irish Republican Brotherhood and um, the Fenians. Um, and and they're, they're, they're really, they're, they're the Irish branch, the American branch of, of the same, uh, same movement. And the idea is to take some part of Canada and occupy it and use it as a bargaining chip to get the British to give Ireland um, it's independence. Right. And, you know, it's probably looking back, it's not a very rational plan uh, <laughs> because there's a few, you know, there's a few thousand of these guys. Right. And um, why should Britain the, care about a small area in Canada? Well, and, and if, and if they care, they have, a, they, they, they have a fairly large army. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And you know your your few thousand guys are probably not going to hold off the British army. Yes, but um, it, it's it's that kind of romantic nationalism. I think when you read a lot of the, when you read a lot of the literature on that, there's a sort of romantic nationalism and almost a desire. To... That there was what was it Latvian priests before? Oh yeah, they were Slovenians. They were Slovenian. members of a. Um, a, but, a missionary so order. What I wanted to know before the Swedes come, and I'm going to ask you about that as well. So, was there was this a pure Irish community, or was it mixed with? Oh no, no, no! It's not a mixed. It's it's a 
the, the announcement that there are copper reserves to be developed leads to an influx of, of people. Um, a, a number of, quite a few of them come from southwestern Wisconsin, northeastern Illinois, where there are lead mines. Right. And these include people who are Cornish, which is a traditional mining area where they mined copper and tin uh, for, for many, many years. Um, the Irish, who initially are from Tipperary, which is another story in terms of the timing of these things. The Tipperary mines were started early in Ireland and, and failed. And there's this migration in the 1820s and 30s. To, to, and then there's also a significant number of Germans who seem to be fairly equally divided between Lutherans and Catholics. Uh, and then there are just, there are native born Americans or people who had, you know, just saw a business opportunity. So how did um, these nationalities get along? Did they, did they get along? They didn't get along very well at all. Um, a, there was a lot of competition because of the way the mines were organized. Uh, they worked on a contract system in which a team of five or six people would bid for jobs. So you would show up, say, on Monday morning, and they would say, well, we need someone to you know, run this tunnel 100 fathoms. How much will you do it for? Right. And, it, and, and, and you would sort of bid down the price. You know, they, they would bid down the price. And so, you, and the teams, there's Cornish, team, Cornish crews and German crews and Irish crews. And they're sort of bidding against one another. And so that's, that's a source of, of tension. Uh, then, of course, the Irish are Catholic. Um, the Cornish are largely Methodist. So they don't interact. And in the 19th century, there's a lot of rivalries, at least in the United States, between different religious denominations as to um, can Catholics really be good Americans are they, or they're going to be too loyal to the Pope. And so there's, a, there's already some anti-Catholic sentiment in the U.S. And of course, the Cornish, since they're Methodists, and come speaking English. Uh, the Cornish language was pretty much extinct by then. The Germans are kind of in the middle and they're the smallest group. Um, but the Irish don't get along the with Irish them. The Irish was high, uh, the highest ranking group, if you will. No, I would say the, Corn the, Cornish, would, the Cornish and the native born Americans uh, would have been the highest ranking group. Most of the early managers, there's a handful of Irish managers, but very quickly the Irish become sort of the miners and, and foremen, but the actual superintendents, the people who run the mines, are, usually, are almost always Cornish or, or Native American Protestants. Um, but the Irish and the Germans don't get along because they, they even the, the German Catholics and the Irish Catholics don't quite agree on how the church should be set up. Right. They have different, different holidays they want to observe, different customs. And so there's there's tension there. No, there's there's a lot of ethnic tensions, and the mines manage it by keeping them as separate as they can, and um, you know that they work all, you know only with one another. The Cornish do better than in terms of getting promotions than than the Irish, but the Irish numerically come to be much. Um, more numerous. There aren't as many Cornish who come. 
Um, the Irish are, are the largest group, but they're not necessarily the top group. So uh, you mentioned the Swedes before. So why what Swedes of all people? Why did they want to get Swedes over? Well, I, I, I haven't been able to figure out how they chose Sweden, but one of the reasons was that they were Protestant. They, they, they wanted to have, you know, the Cornish were good workers, they were Protestant. Um, now, I, I guess I probably should, should go study the history of mining in Sweden, um, but there may have been a crisis in, in the Swedish mining industry that freed people up. For example, one of the reasons why there's so many Irish and Cornish willing to migrate in the 1840s and 50s is the mining industries in Ireland and Cornwall are collapsing because copper is being produced in Chile and Australia in huge quantities and a very high quality. And when you look at the um, prices, most of the, most of the non-Michigan copper is chemically different from Irish copper and, and um, would you say the Swedes were a cheap workforce, kind of like on the? Well, they would have been a cheap workforce, and they would have been uh, a Protestant workforce, and, and kind of like how Polish they, people are today in Norway and Scandinavia, and they were cheap in America as well. The Swedes. Well, that may be. I, I suspect that that's part of it, and they and they, um, they they later, and I suspect that this another part was that they didn't speak English, right? And so they would not just Yeah, they couldn't team up. You know, they couldn't sort of team up with the other workers, at least for a while. Right. Um, you know, they couldn't talk to you know, the other, the Cornish, they weren't going to bond with the Cornish because they had different languages. Um, the so Germans. It's more difficult to learn and rice, I suppose, and uh, that kind of thing. Well, I, I think it was more just because in the 1880s and 1890s, they deliberately hire um, a, a broad mix of ethnic people so to, to, to keep them from organized, to try to keep them from organizing because you have Italians and, and Poles and um, Finn, a lot, lot of Finns. Um, and they, they, they go to different churches, they have different languages. And the idea, I think the mining company's idea was these guys won't form a union. <laughs> right. they, 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 you know, they can't communicate. They don't really like the first another. generation. Yeah, at least for the first generation. You know, it's not a long-term plan, but um, you know, they the company seems to have played on on ethnic rivalries, and I think the Swedes. Um, again, I, I I confess I probably should find out what's going on in the Swedish mining industry. My hunch would be that there's yeah. some kind of disruption that is caused because people usually. This is, I think, a generality about immigration history. People who are happy and comfortable rarely pick up and move halfway across the world. Yeah. <laughs> Just for the heck of it. I mean, you know, the Irish leave Ireland in part because of the, you know, the potato famine drives yeah. people out. Um, the, the mining industry is collapsing. Um, later, you know, land, you know, the families are too large for the land. People have to leave. Um, you know, very few people are leaving France at this time. I don't know if you know this, but a lot of Scandinavians that there were quite a few Scandinavians that moved to immigrated to America in the 1800s. Oh, yes. No, no. Most of them settled down in Minnesota, in the Minnesota area. Well, this is not far from Minnesota. It's actually, um, 
in 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 Hancock, Michigan, which is the center of the copper. Yeah, district. that's that's some of the some of the areas where the Scandinavians settled down for. Some yeah, time. no in fact, there's a Finlandia University is is in Hancock, and it has a deep. It goes back into the 19th century. It was originally a seminary uh, for uh, Finnish Lutheran ministers, um, yeah. and there's there's a lot of Danes and Norwegians and, and Swedes. Yeah. Um, all, all through Upper Michigan, um, I think you know the the Finns were probably you know even some of them were farmers. They would uh, root, root, grow root crops and and hay, and um, no that those but they begin to come into the area as the Irish are leaving. Right. Uh, there's um, in the by the 1870s the Irish are net moving out, um, and the the last wave when the Irish copper mines collapsed for good in the 1870s and finally closed, literally closed down in, 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 by 1880. Um, Butte is the bigger destination because it's more welcoming. And to a lesser extent, Leadville. I have a friend who has done a very nice book manuscript on Leadville. And, um, and, and that's, that becomes another destination. Michigan, by then it's well known, it's not the best place to go if you're Irish. You're not going to be really welcome there, and whereas if you go to Butte, you know you'll you'll be welcome, you'll be treated well, and you'll have you'll have opportunity to advance in the company. But you mentioned the train coming in eighteen eighties. Yes. Yeah. So how the, how does the train, apart from the obvious reason, how how does the train changes the community? Well, the train can operate year round, and uh, the train. Um, can um, move things um, more effectively from the mines, which, you know, you have to put a mine where the mineral resource is. And so, well, among other things, the, the, you can have a short line railroad that goes from the mines to the smelters, and, the, and but the smelters are built right on uh, an inlet of the lake. But in the, in the iron mining district in Marquette, the, rail, the first railroads are to connect the mines to the harbor. And so what that does is it makes the movement of, raw of, the, of the product to shipping more efficient. Then as the railroad branches out and gets to Green Bay and gets to um, places further south, you can begin to have communication with the outside world on a regular basis. You get the mail um, you know, on a regular basis year round. So would this be um, the sort of the golden age, if you will, of the mining? Well, actually, um, it, it, it's probably between, between the time the mines come in World War I, it's probably the peak of profitability, yes, uh, for the mines. Not necessarily for the, you know, the Irish community or for the workers, but for the mining companies. Um, as electrification moves forward, they're able to, you know, the, there's a tremendous demand for their product. They're able to ship it out more efficiently on a year-round basis. Um, so, you know, that that that's a big plus. Plus, it's not as isolated um, for the for the managers. I mean, they can get out. I mean, I, and. Um, for example, a lot of the managers and the, the wealthier Irish and the Native Americans in the Cornish who, who, who had high ranking positions, 
a lot of them sent their children to school in, in St. Louis because they could take the train, eventually they could take the train and they could go down and you know, go to St. Louis or go to the university in, in, uh, in, in lower Michigan. Um, and so they had much more opportunity to be in, be in contact with the, the, the larger world for their, for their, for their families. And, for, for, and you see more cultural events with the railroad than you don't have this long period where you really can't, you, you can bring in touring theatrical companies. They come in on the train and you can have theatrical performances. You can have plays, you can have concerts. Um, you can have things that break up the, the long winter um, with um, events at the various fraternal halls. Uh, each ethnic group has its social and fraternal organization. They have a hall, they organize um, events, um, cultural events, um, patri patriotic events. Um, and you know, and they can do that when the railroad comes, they can do that year round rather than only being able to do it for, for half of the year. But how how does the how does World War One changes the in industry? It, does it change in the good way or does it change in for the worse? Well, it, I don't think it changes the industry in in, in, a, in a fundamental way. Um, they the production, you know, the, the things that change the industry um, have, have a lot to do with electrification. Uh, when you can, when you have electric, World War One does not have much effects on the. Well, World War One is is a sort of last prosperity. I'm sorry, I didn't hear. I didn't hear the question clearly. How does World War One change the? World War One. Well, it, it it creates this tremendous demand for 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 the product for copper, and the price goes way up, and they're able to um, increase production, that had been stabilizing because um, other markets were opening and their operating costs were, were, high, were high. Um, Butte was very productive. Leadville was very productive. Um, mines were being developed in Arizona. You had the huge copper resources in Australia and Chile. Um, and Michigan was kind of not the main game in town anymore. There were all these other younger districts um and the michigan mines were very deep by world war one they're five five thousand six thousand feet deep so you would and say that started to run out well they're starting to run out but also they're just the operating costs you have to pump out the water the mines the mines will if you don't pump them out they will fill with water and so you have to be constantly pumping water um from six thousand feet deep um, you know, so you, you have, the, the, and then you're, you're just your time to get people up and down. They actually had dock mules that they, that lived in the mines underground and never came to the surface that hauled the carts along little tracks within the mine to bring them. That must be a depressing life. <laughs> yes, for the poor mules. You know, they had, they literally had mule stalls at different levels of the mine and, um, they would, they would, they would, they would, they literally lived in the mine to, to haul the um, carts, um, you know, to the, to the, where the lift was, um, where they could be loaded. And of course, that's an expense. You have to, if you're at, you know, you're hauling things up from 5,000 feet, 
that's more expensive than doing it from 1,000 feet or in Arizona where they begin to develop open pit mines where you don't have to, you don't have any haul and lifting costs and relatively, and you can minimize your pumping costs. So would you say this is across the, across the downfall of the, the world? Yeah, it, the, the it's, it's, sorry, you froze right. Uh, it's a, it's a combination, you know, they, their cost of doing business, the cost of doing business is, is higher than in their comp in comp competitive markets. Um, and they're also, as they go deeper, uh, the percentage of copper per rock, you know, in the rock is beginning to shrink. Some people argue that they could be viable if the price had stayed at the World War I level, but the price wasn't going to stay at the World War I level. Once the war is over, the price comes down and they begin to become unprofitable. They have a little bit of a resurgence in World War II, the Second World War. So they're still That's up most, during World War II. No, no well, they're, they're most, they're, they're, most of them have, have gone to sort of minimal production. What they actually do is they develop a new technology and they process, reprocess the waste rock from previous, you know, 100 years of production, which had piled up and using new technology are able to extract a lot of copper from that rock that they had not technically been able to extract um, earlier. And so it, it shifts from being actually being on, they're still called mines, but they're not really mining in the traditional sense. They're reprocessing uh, waste sand, which is pulverized um, pulverized rock. It has a consistency of sort of grainy sand, but it's 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 pulverized rock. And that was part of the part of the process. Um, the, the rock would be brought up, it would be pulverized, and there's a flotation step. And then the, the copper that flows to the surface is is then smelted into into ingots and shipped out. The other thing that happens to them is their copper was chemically different from the rest of the copper in the world. And that became a problem because the major processing centers, you know, geared up to process the most common types of ore. Um, and that's, that actually happens not just to the copper mines. I've, I've done some work on an iron mine in, that's about 90 miles east of this district. And it had a very, very high quality ore that could it's called, it could be directly shipped. It had high enough iron content uh, that it could be shipped directly to smelters. Well, the rest of the iron industry shifts to, to taconite enriched pellets. And, the, 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 and that requires an entirely different set of handling equipment and processes to make it from ore to iron. And so the, the, the very, very rich ore uh, simply didn't fit into the system. And, and so that mine became uneconomical. And so there's a complicated series of things that are happening. And part of it is their operating costs are escalating. The price of the, in the world market is, is not keeping pace with their costs and the competition from newer and frankly, richer districts. I mean, Butte is a tremendous reserve of copper ore. 
um, it's 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 inc it's incredibly rich uh, reserve. Australia, the Australian copper mines are huge, huge masses. Chile, I mean, they, they they just dwarf it in terms of how much copper there is, and so it it be you know they had an initial advantage in that in the 1840s uh, they had relatively low operating costs. They had a very um, high quality product. They could process it. High demand in action. Yeah. So. So when so when the when the mining industry goes out goes out of business, if you will, what what happens to the town after after that? Well, they 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 shrink tremendously. Um, Calumet, Michigan, which was one of the centers of of uh, of the of the mining industry. Um, goes down from oh, several hundred thousand people to 30,000 um, within a few years. There were five, there were six Catholic churches in Calumet, um, you know, to service this population. There were probably a dozen or more Lutheran churches. Um, and that, you know, in the business district, you know, you know collapses. Um, you can see if you go up, when you go up there and you know, when you just drive around and you go, you'll, you'll see just foundations <laughs> because people just, you know, houses, there was no one to live in them and, and they, they just sat empty. And then with the amount of snow that falls up there, it doesn't take long for the roof to cave in. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you have this, this real, no, real shrinkage of, of population and an aging of the population. The population becomes um, on average, quite old because um, not, it's so isolated, even with the railroad when it has the railroad, that very few other industries really come in. Um, That's the problem in mining towns in general, isn't it? That both people yeah. just work and then aren't able to maintain the towns, and then they have to leave and it becomes ghost towns. Yeah, well, because they're, they're, you can't pick where you want to put it. You, know, you have to put it where the mineral is. Yeah. And so they tend to be, yeah, they tend to be remote. And so- People it, don't think the long so well, game in this thing, what, what happens after the mine runs out? What should, what should we do then? People don't think about, them to think about that sometimes. Well, they, you know, there's sometimes, yeah. And there've been some efforts. I mean, there's, um, you know, there's a university there in the Copper District that originally was there to train miners and mining engineers. And they've done a lot with developing the forest industry. Um, you know, and lumbering and forest products. And, you know, and that, but that's not the kind of industry that creates huge numbers of jobs. Right. You know, there are a number of paper mills, um, you know, but they were never able to attract anything that would create the number of jobs, you know, that, that the mines offered. And so all of the communities uh, decline in size and, I was watching um, this, this Norwegian documentary. I don't know if this is the town we're talking about, actually, but it's probably not. But this guy called Thomas Schelser, he went, walked, went around America to see what life, what it's really like for those who have it kind of worse, if you will, from living condition. And he went to one of those, one of them, one ex-mining town, and it was one of the poorest poorest towns in the country. People were didn't mine shut. It was a coal mine. And then shut down, and then, then they weren't able to 
they didn't know what to do after the mining yeah. shutdown because they didn't find work, they didn't have no edu education other than mining, and they were frustrated because they didn't have anywhere else to go, and the government basically experimented with drugs on, on this town. I don't know if you know which town I'm referring to, I don't remember. No, I, I, I don't know the specific town, but I know the problem because I'm in Western Kentucky right now, but in Eastern Kentucky, that, that's exactly what's happened. Uh, there were coal mines, it, it, you know, you've probably heard of Appalachia. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that there were a huge number of copper coal mines that were very pr pr prosperous and productive from the 1870s into the, you know, maybe into the 1930s. Um, but over time, the demand for coal is not what it used to be, as yeah. oil and particularly natural gas have come online. It's the same with copper. The Pardon? It is, it is the same with copper, I can imagine. Yes, although metals, metals, you know, yeah, there's they can now obviously wiring, electrical wiring is not as big as big as you know, fiber optic cable is probably more of a, in demand. But the other thing that's happened in in, in and it's happened in in all mining, the technology has changed tremendously. Yeah, I mean, I went down. I went down into a coal mine, oh, maybe twenty years ago, and um, there were like six people working, and they pointed out that the and they have a machine now. The machine just like chews the coal right out of the, you know, just on a belt and it's out. That machine can produce more coal in an hour than a hundred men could in an eight hour shift. <laughs> so, you know, even if you could bring back coal, you're not gonna bring back the jobs. Yeah. Because the, techno the technology has come along and, and replaced it. Uh, I, don't, I need to translate this word because I cannot remember the word of it, but uh, hold, on, hold on. Yeah, we had this ore mine in the, uh, not far from where I live, actually, and it's kind of it's a, it's a decent town now. Then it's not like poor or as bad as you think. But they're they're the same thing. Is the where the parents and the kids had to go in generation of generation of generation into the, the ore mine, and when it shut down, well, you know you know what happened. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a common problem with you know. As we move, you know, as the economy, the the global economy moves, um, you know, away from the kind of industry that we knew in the 19th and first half of the 20th century, which was much more labor intense. Now, things are much more technology intense. Yeah, and um, there just aren't the jobs, and then some of some of the things, um, some of the resources have played out. Mines, you know, mines don't work. In you know, there's not an infinite supply of whatever the mineral is in any one site at a certain yeah. point. Have you been to the mine yourself, the mine we were talking about, or did, have you? Oh yeah, no, I've been to the mines both in um, in Ireland. I've been to the Allahees mine. What was your experience like when you was in the, both in, in the Ireland and in Michigan? Well, the Irish mines, you can't go down in there. They're all flooded. Oh, right. um, but they're, 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 you know, it's, it's actually a, a very scenic place. It's the Barra Peninsula is largely undeveloped. 
Uh, there are, you know, some stone ruins, um, the small villages around them. Um, and, and it's actually not that different, other than the weather is better than upper Michigan in that the Bear Peninsula is, juts out into the Atlantic Ocean. The Michigan mines run the Keweenaw Peninsula, which juts out into Lake Superior. Um, they're both hilly um, and, and sort of an uneven ter terrain, small settlements. Um, the physical locations are actually fairly the same. Now I have been underground in, um, in a couple of copper mines in Michigan that have been made into tourist attractions for, for want of a better word. Um, they've been pumped out and developed. One, I've been, as, I've been 500 feet underground in one mine. <laughs> and um, it's, it's, it's an interesting, you know, the, the, when you're under the, when you're in the mine, this, it's, you're, it's not claustrophobic because the, it's called a stope. The stope is 30 feet high. Um, so you're in this big open space uh, underground and you can see the veins of the mineral um, and it, you know, and it's just the, the economics were, were that it couldn't be continued. Um, but that, that's a, that's a newer mine. I've been in actually one of the, the first mines from the 1850s, which you literally walk down a staircase into the mine. Yeah, the first level. Pardon? You don't have to crouch. To no, the... no, it's it's high enough. I'm, I'm six foot two, and I could walk down. No, it's it's they would they would set up scaffolding uh, to to cut. They they're more than eight. They're, they're higher because they would build scaffolding up to take down the rock uh, as as they as they could. Um, but that one you can see because you have to be careful. You get down and you're on the first level. But where the shaft was about six inches below the surface, you can see the water that has the mine has flooded. And um, and that's that's what happens when you when 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 you eventually abandon them. Um, they they'll they fill with water. It takes a while, but rock rock is actually porous. And once you cut into it with a mine shaft or a drift. The shafts are the part that goes down, the drifts are the part that goes uh, laterally. Um, water seeps out and it, it will accumulate. And so as you go, you have to, you have costs of pumping. So you, you're constantly running steam en and they use steam engines uh, in the 19th century for that. So you're constantly you know, running a steam engine and later they were electrified um, but that's always that was a tough decision. Um, you know, the mining companies are are we closed for good or are we just closed for a short period of time because the price is down? Do we turn off the pumps? So once once you turn off the pumps, uh, the cost of reopening the mine becomes can become quite substantial if you have to pump out you know, millions of gallons of water. It's quite expensive, um, I can, I think. Well, and and you can't, some of it, you can't, and now, nowadays, you can't just pump it into a river. A lot of it is, is, is contaminated with different chemicals. Um, I, it, it, a lot of the iron mines in northern Michigan uh, have arsenic 
occurring with iron. And so the water has a high arsenic content. And you can't, um, you can't just pump arsenic, <laughs> in, you know, water with a high arsenic content into the local river. So there, there's a, now, it, today, there's a lot of technical issues in um, even if, you know, that, that these mines, but there's a number of them that have been kept accessible as tourist attractions. At least there's much more safety level. rules and as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a different industry than it was, um, obviously. It's much more strict than it was before. Oh, yeah, no, there were, there were for most of the period that I've studied, uh, there, there were no, no, real, no rules. Um, there, you know, it was unbridled capitalism. And, um, and it was very dangerous. I mean, the copper mines are not as dangerous as coal mines. Coal mines are the most dangerous because you have the methane gas and as much, you can have you can have you have to be careful about explosions if you, if you hit a methane pocket but in the in the copper mines there's no gas it's solid rock um, there's no there's no mineral matter that mineral excuse me vegetable matter that would that decomposed so you don't have the problem with gas but right. there are issues you're still underground with explosives and you know that sends rock moving about, there are shafts and drifts. And one of the most common accidents was someone would, you know, in, in, in poor lighting conditions, someone would, you know, miscalculate and fall into the, fall down the shaft and um, be, be, be killed that way. Yeah. Or, um, Thank you so much for coming. I think we covered most of what you were missed uh, uh, to I appreciate it. I I know from what you said, it's a little different from most of what you do, but I hope it was. I hope you enjoyed it. Was it. Definitely, I enjoyed, it's something fascinating I, about the mining industry. So it, it was most definitely interest, interesting. Good. It was nice to talk to you. Nice to meet you. And before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote on the social media where people can find you? Well, I'm on. I'm on academia.edu. I have a number of my papers that I've given are there, and. Um, I'm working on a book on this, but it's it's not ready to promote. I've published a number of articles in, in academic journals, and I have a number of papers, and I've put them on uh, academia.edu. And people can, I'm at Murray State University. If anyone has any questions, they can, it's wmulligan at murraystate.edu. And I'd be happy to correspond with them. And uh, you can find us on Instagram at well.h12. We are also on, you can find this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and Pocket Cast, wherever you can find those podcasts. We are also on YouTube at well.h12. And, uh, and I got the new big news because right, right now I'm starting a second podcast where I will interview not just historians, but people, but people from all walks of life. For example, I'm going to interview someone that escaped and grew up in a cult. So that will be very interesting. I already recorded someone who worked for Jim Jeffries show. And we had an episode on conspiracy theories, which you can find exclusive only on stereo. The app is free to download. You, all you have to do is find us at that age 12, not well in first, it's just that age 12. And I will put it in the description below. So that's definitely check us out. Give us a follow if you will. 
make sure to follow us on Instagram as well. This has been on that age well. Thank you so much for coming. I'll see you next week. Take care. Thank you very much. <laughs>